Welcome to Talking Infrastructure, the fortnightly podcast brought to you by global infrastructure company ACOM. In this series, we'll be discussing the hot topics, key projects and innovations that are helping to solve some of the world's most complex infrastructure challenges. Hello and welcome to episode one of the Talking Infrastructure podcast. My name is James Banks and I'm head of external relations in Europe, the Middle East and Africa for ACOM. Today's podcast is focusing on London, specifically the views of the people that live here on the future of their city's infrastructure. Joining me to discuss this is my regular co-host, structural engineer, author, TV personality, and all-round good egg, ACOM's very own Roma Agrawal. Hello, Roma. Hello. Not being ones to shy away from a challenge, we've decided to tackle the first episode head-on and record it in front of a live audience here in the ACOM office in London. Luckily, though, we have two fantastic guests to help us navigate through. Roma, can you do the honours, please, and introduce them? Yeah, absolutely my pleasure. So, firstly, we have ACOM's Chief Executive, Civil Infrastructure for EMEA, Colin Wood. Colin is responsible for leading the growth strategy and client engagement of ACOM's civil infrastructure business in EMEA, which includes the transportation, water, ports and power sectors. A former RAF wing commander, Colin has a strong background in defence, transportation and construction, having worked previously for Transport for London and Heathrow Airport. Welcome, Colin. Hi, Rob. Our second guest is Chief Executive of the Association for Consultancy and Engineering, Hannah Vickers. A civil engineer by profession, Hannah joined the ACE from the Institution of Civil Engineers, where she led the policy and public affairs team. Prior to this, she advised ministers at the Treasury on infrastructure delivery policy whilst also working as a consultant to senior stakeholders on a number of major projects, including Crossrail 2 and the redevelopment of London's Olympic Park. Welcome, Hannah. Evening, Rema. Right, so here at ACOM, as part of our Global Future of Infrastructure report, we've asked a thousand people in London for their views on the city's infrastructure and their ambitions for its future. We will get into the stats in a minute, but before we do, how do we think London fares? How does it stack up with other global cities? Colin, you're a well-traveled young man. What do you reckon? Great question, James. From my perspective, I think if you ask a thousand people, it will all depend on the journey they had on the day. Uh, and I think that's one of the things from my perspective that I see, you know, fairly regularly. I can, you know, travel around London and have a really stress-free journey or I can have an awful journey. And I'll always remember the last journey I had. I think, you know, compare that to other cities I go to, it's much the same, you know. So I think London can be no better, no worse than any other major city, but it can be a bit inconsistent. And I think it's about sorting out that inconsistency is the key piece for me. Anna, what are your thoughts? Um, I completely agree on the um, inconsistency point. I think, you know, if you look at the history of the um, transport infrastructure in in London, actually what we've got uh, compared to a lot of the more modern cities is a well-established ageing infrastructure. So I think where we have got some of the likes of, you know, hopefully soon, Crossrail, in, <laughs> interacting and, and sort of improving our ageing infrastructure, it's going to give a, a more modern feel to it. But actually, we've still got that challenge of how we manage the ageing infrastructure, and that is where I think we have the inconsistencies, uh, certainly in sort of passenger experience. Yeah, agreed. Are there any sort of global examples, I'm really springing this on you, that to, to, to look to that, that London should aspire to be like in the future or models that we should follow. I mean, I think you, you make a, raise a really good point there about our, our ageing mm-hmm. infrastructure. You know, we were great first adopters 150 years ago and 
that was that was great, but now we need to keep moving forward. And how do, how do we do that? So I think there's a lot we could look to in terms of Southeast Asia and some of the standards of the new build infrastructure that they're bringing in there actually is quite interesting. And if you're starting from scratch, you can go to the forefront of what customers are expecting out of their infrastructure in terms of smart infrastructure, in terms of just passenger experience. So I think there's, there's a lot we could look at how we sort of retrofit onto our ageing infrastructure in that space. But equally, I think, you know, we have learned a lot. We've learned a lot in terms of passenger experience, in terms of um, demand, actually, if you look at some of the smart ticketing that Transport for London use and how they feed that data back in because they have, you know, really good long-established records and understanding of what commuters want and and how the uh, city responds, actually, to different infrastructure interventions, so to speak, so new projects and things. They've actually got quite a good data set on that, which you wouldn't have if you've got a rapidly expanding, growing new city. Mm -hmm. Oh, we, we've obviously gone straight into to transport, which is which is good. <laughs> we are we are kind of trying to across the whole kind of infrastructure piece here. But Roma, you were talking to me about earlier about your tube ride in being in some chap's armpit, sweaty yeah. armpit on the way in. I'm I'm exactly the right height for yeah. the average man's armpit. <laughs> peak armpit height. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> I, I've apologised, and I will wear deodorant tomorrow. Um, from the stats that we looked at, 60% of Londoners are finding it increasingly stressful saying it's getting worse. Is that fair? Is it getting worse? You know, we've already mentioned Crossrail. I wonder how long it would take, but straight in there with Crossrail. Is it getting worse or are we just Londoners who like to have a whinge? Colin? Again, I think it depends very much the the, the mode of transport you had. I mean, as an example this morning, I, I, I caught the 620 train into London and go back 18 months and that train would have been relatively busy, but not particularly. Today, people standing all the way in, which is becoming fairly standard. So I think it's, London's becoming busier. You know, we, we know that, you know, the mayor has said, you know, that we, we've got to become more green and more sustainable, but we've also got to cater for the huge increase in the population that London's going to have. And I think what we're seeing at the moment, it's a great point that Hannah makes, we've got ageing infrastructure, which is pretty much capacity constrained, because you're having to build over the top of, you know, the, the, the things that are there at the moment. And that's struggling to cope with the demand. So I, I think the, where, where those two come into tension, you know, greater volume, constrained capacity, there's always going to be issues. Do you think there's a, and this isn't something that we've really delved into in this report, but do you think there's an understanding with the general public of of some of the complications that we have when trying to update our infrastructure or, or bring in new infrastructure? Mm. I mean, look at, okay, go back to Crossrail, look at Thames Tideway, etc. The things that when they actually start to build a project, only then do they really understand the complications and the situation they're dealing with because London's been around for so long. Do people understand that, do you think, or... They are very quick to blame people when things go wrong. Um, I think it's a balance. I mean, what we um, do have to contend with is we're victims of our own success and that we do have in London fantastic public transport. We do have great, reliable, quick infrastructure systems. And actually, even if you compare that to other cities in the UK, they don't have that. You know, I travelled overseas on behalf of the government and some of the things that you would that people accept as perfectly you know, normal and acceptable are sort of two-hour commute by car in Jakarta just being sat in traffic to go two miles is absolutely fine because that's what you do. You just leave for work two hours earlier. So I do think in London, actually, if you're thinking about customers' expectations, you've got quite a high starting point um, because they just take it for granted, actually. And when we're valuing infrastructure, that reliability of it is just a given for people in London, which isn't around the world. And I think when you start to disrupt that, Actually, it seems like it is, you know, has a huge impact on people's daily lives. But what they don't realise is they're starting from a point where, you know, we've already got such a high standard. So we're sort of victims of our own success in that. 
So I always say this. I always say that the only time I hear the word engineering said in public is when you get these announcements saying that your train is late because of engineering work. Yes. <laughs> and so I think it is really important to be positive and to look to the future and so on. So, you know, we know things are pretty good at the moment, but there are improvements to be made. So maybe more specifically, how do we actually pay for those improvements? So one thing that I thought was really interesting in, in the surveys that we did was that 39% of respondents were willing to pay higher taxes to fund improvements to their infrastructure. But is that the right way to go? Or should we be challenging bodies like Transport for London and Network Rail to raise money through you know, transport-oriented developments? Should we be looking at brownfield sites? Should we be getting the public sector, so the private sector more involved? You know, what are the different mechanisms we should be looking at? Colin, do you want to yeah, start? Yeah, I'll pick up. I mean, I'm, I wouldn't advocate paying more in tax you know, for a number of reasons. I think you know, the, the, the tax bills are quite high for, for many people anyway. I think it drives expectation. You know, go back to the point that you know, if you're paying extra in tax, you will be less likely to accept any disruption to your journey because you've paid for it. Therefore, you know, your expectation is much higher. For me, I think, you know, the National Infrastructure Assessment, you, in fact, the government comes out, and you know, we've got a £500 billion funding gap in terms of the infrastructure that's needed across the UK at the moment. For me, the best way of getting that is private investment. But, you know, there are a number of steps we need to take to make sure that investment is attractive to, to private investors, I believe. Okay. And Hannah, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I think so. this one... Um to my mind, I think we need to be absolutely clear around the difference between funding and financing infrastructure because we do conflate the two. And ultimately, it's either direct taxation that pays for infrastructure or it is user pays. So, you know, however we might structure our funding and financing deals, we still need to be thinking ultimately we're delivering for the public and they will be paying, you know, one way or another. So I just think that if you look at it that way, actually, you know, bring more private sector finance in, the way to make those deals more successful and perhaps learn from what we've done uh, in the, you know, in, in sort of the history of PFI and PPP is to look at how you can group that into a way that more directly um, targets the beneficiaries that pay. So things like land value capture, which they use quite extensively in New York to raise funding, you know, would perhaps be seen by the public as fairer in that they aren't, you know, directly funding something through taxation, like, you know, as Crossrail is funded at the moment, that then, you know, benefits a lot of the people who happen to have the luck of living along the line and, and have the, uh, you know, property um, band increases as a property price increases as a result of that. But equally, you could think, well, have we got a mechanism through the tax system already that captures that? Because if you are benefiting businesses, you're encouraging growth, you're encouraging more people into and more investment into London, that is going to ultimately pay off in terms of more tax. So it's quite a complex system to unpick. I mean, if I was looking, you know, purely from us as a sort of engineering and consultancy sector, I think where we could really add value in this is to understand the risk and be able to work a little bit more between government and the private sector to help them structure better deals that get better value for money because we are helping them to understand where the risks sit and how to mitigate them. So I think for us, that's something that we should be taking away and thinking about. That's, that's really interesting. And just because you mentioned government, let's, mm. let's bring a bit of politics <laughs> um, into the discussion, our favourite topic. So another really interesting finding of the report is that just over half of the people surveyed in London believe that city officials are taking a short-term view of in infrastructure planning. And there's this general perception that the large-scale projects that are taking place in the capital are being delivered late. And we, we've mentioned the C word a couple of times already, haven't we? So I'm just interested in your thoughts. Like, how, how do we get out of this five-year election cycle? Is it fair 
that people believe that that is such a big problem? I, th- I think it's true to a certain extent. I, I, that said, I don't think you can ever truly remove politics, you know, from the from the planning cycle. But I do think we need much broader cross-party support, you know, around some of the major projects that we're carrying out. And it goes back to something we mentioned earlier on. We don't always talk about the benefits of what we do. You know, we we tell people there's going to be an interruption to the service. We tell people that we, you know, we're going to bring in a, you know, a new railway line or, you know, better roads. But we don't really shout about the benefits that come out. And I think, you know, if you can get political support um, that's aligned, you know, to the benefit, you're more likely, I think, to get the delivery on time when it should be. And and who who do you think should be responsible for making that, you know, getting that message out there to the people so that we we are all better educated about What's happening? I, I, I think it's a mix. I mean, I, you know, certainly, you know, the politicians need to you know, to talk about that, and I think it's in their benefit to advocate how they're, you know, the, the socio-economic benefit of transportation, you know, for example, or you know, the cleaner, the greener, the more sustainable transport, but also, you know, the people who are working on it. And one of the things, you know, we're looking at in ACOM at the moment is how just how do we shout about great performance, you know, and that's so I, I think it comes very much to a partnership, you know, in, on who's delivering the project or program at the time. Okay, and Hannah, I think you've got some thoughts about long-term thinking. Yeah, I think the one of the most undervalued things we have at the moment in infrastructure is the National Infrastructure Commission. So although they aren't on there completely independent from government statutory footing, I think it's incumbent on all of us to really get behind them. So if they are looking at the National Infrastructure Assessment and setting out the outcomes, so this is taking a proper sort of long-term strategic uh, view at the uh, demands that you know the, the public are going to place on the infrastructure system over the next 30 to 40 years, I think actually... There aren't many countries around the world that have that. So we need to make the most of having someone done have done that exercise to define the outcomes and then use that to take some of the politics out of the big infrastructure decisions. Because if we can get behind them, actually that you know starts to mandate it to government that whoever is in power, they need to sort of follow through with uh, the decisions of the pre- previous government. Someone who has worked closely in Treasury, that's quite a hard sell when you're swapping chancellors or swapping governments or swapping coalition governments, actually. Uh, they want to come in and be seen to do their own thing. So, you know, the more we can do to support the National Infrastructure Commission and get their plans out there as the sort of recognised expectation for the public, actually. So it's presenting this unified voice. Um, and I guess my other question, you talked a bit about funding and financing. Mm. So ultimately, they still have to convince the people in power on the day to pay for things. They do. Although the um, part of the negotiations to get the National Infrastructure Commission set up uh, came with giving them a an agreed uh, funding envelope. So they have this 1.3% of GDP, which the you know the Treasury has agreed. Whoever is in power, that will be spent. So it's within that for the National Infrastructure Commission to prioritise and set out the long-term strategy. So I think that actually is a big milestone that we've probably underplayed. And it's important for us to make sure that, you know, that is consistent then with governments you know, who may come into power sooner than we think. I'm not wanting to make any assumptions, but as governments change, actually, it's important that the, the NIC is recognised as the sort of independent voice of infrastructure. And the fact that they focus on outcomes. I had a good debate with Lord Adonis on this because he was, and he was chair of the National Infrastructure Commission, he was very keen on them getting into specific projects and mandating specific projects. Uh, and I was of the view of, you know, having 
seen the inside of how Westminster works, actually they should stick to outcomes because that makes them completely apolitical. If they just go with the public needs, you know, capacity improvements in the southeast, it needs better connectivity with the transport in the north, it needs a long-term sustainable energy generation that is not coal-fired power stations. If they come up with those sorts of outcomes, actually it gives the government of the day the uh, ability to put their own stamp on it and say, okay, well, these are our projects, these are our policies to deliver on those outcomes. It gives it a much better chance of, um, of having sort of proper longevity beyond the sort of four or five year cycle. Having said that, I have a whole different view on how we need to manage the announcements of projects. Just a little, you know, like another stat, 60, almost 59% people believe that these projects were always delivered late. Now, we've mentioned the C word, let's move on from that. Um, but is there something to be said about better, I mean, clearly I'm, I work in communications, is there something to be done about better engagement with people, not only before these large projects mm -hmm. kick off, but also that ongoing piece so people understand what's going on and, uh, and really and it goes back to the complications piece, I guess. Mm. And I think the benefits of the projects need yeah. to mm -hmm. also be really clearly communicated because I don't think... You know, we, we always see construction as a negative, noisy, annoying thing that enters our community and then kind of disappears. Um, and then we sort of forget that in that interim period, there's this kind of creation happening. So I, th I think this, this whole communication piece seems to be one that, that has a lot of legs. I think we can be smarter with it, though. I think where, where we have planned disruption, then, you know, there are smarter ways of providing alternative modes of transport or moving people around. You know, you go back to the Olympics, for example, you, it, you, generally people accept the Olympics was very successful in terms of providing transport. But what it did was have a multimodal transport approach to movement of passengers and public. And if something on the day occurred that meant that a particular road wasn't working or a particular tube network or the tube line was down, then immediately the data was joined together and sent out to people. You know, and that's something that we, we've almost lost sight of. So I think we, you know, we've got to look at you know, some sort of digital intervention that is a, you know, it can shape the journey for somebody and they can interrogate as well. Have there, going back to the Olympics, have there been many lessons learned that have really been applied across the wider wider London infrastructure since since 2012? Anything that you can pick up on or or have, as you kind of said then, alluded to there, some yeah, I, I think, I mean, lessons the, lost? There have been lessons lost, definitely. You know, and I think the, you know, one of the things that was done very well during the Olympics is that if you were travelling into London on a on a train, the, you know, the train driver would be given, as you approach the train, st the train station, you know, he or she would be given the information about what tube network, the, you know, the passengers should use. That stopped completely. You know, and that's something, you know, you know, and my question is why? You know, so we've got the ability to share and interrogate data between the different modes of transport. We can easily bring that into a composite picture and stick it on an app. But there needs to be the impetus to do that as well. Yeah. yeah I was a journalist during the Olympics, so I got on the, the press bus, which funnily enough was, was marvellous. All the journalists were very, very happy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't think so. When I travelled during rush hour in the Olympics, the trains were empty. And I think because people, there was so much communication around the fact that, you know, people should work flexibly, they should try and avoid certain peak mm. times on the tube, mm -hmm. that actually we spread out the use of the public transport and we didn't have these huge peaks at, exactly you, know, right. at you know, morning and evening rush hour and then, and then it was empty for the rest of the day. It was actually being fairly well used throughout. And do we know, and was, was people's data, was the data being used sort of on a sort of live platform at the time during the Olympics? Very much so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, you know, we, when I worked in TFL, you know, you would look at where the queues are likely to be, you'd have a live data feed. 
And if you saw those queues building, you would configure the station in a different way. You'd open different exits or different entrances, or you would communicate to, you know, if you remember those games makers with the big hands that they had, you would get messages to them and they would point you in a different direction. They would tell you to use a bus or, you know, yeah. or a different road. And, you know, I suppose my challenge, you know, to all of us is why do we need something like the Olympics to do that? Because as you mm -hmm. say, Roma, if you can smooth those peaks out, then there is capacity on the network. It's just that everyone tries to use it at the same time. Mm -hmm. And globally, we've seen that people are willing to share their their personal data for, you know, we're all using apps to get around around London, around large cities. 47% of people in London apparently are happy to, to share their personal data. So uh, perhaps we're, are we not using it enough, Hannah? Is something that you can... Uh, no, absolutely we're not using it enough, but I think in part because we focus in the wrong area. So if you think actually what the majority of the time consultants are, design engineers are brought in to do. They are brought in to design for a client that's already decided on the scope of what it is pretty much exactly that they want. You know, if you are we're procured on the basis of problem statements or, you know, we are struggling with congestion in this particular tube line or something, you may welcome up with an entirely different digital solution to that mm. rather than saying, oh, well, what we need to do is to, you know, enhance the capacity out of the station and just get everybody up onto the you know, streets more quickly. So I think there's, there is, you know, there's sort of fundamental change in, in how we talk about schemes and that goes all the way from how, you know, politicians announce them. You know, if you, you just have to look at the, the hard ride that High Speed 2's had in the development of its business case because it was announced as a high-speed rail scheme when actually it's all about capacity. And you so say if you start to, you know, back to Roman's point, if you start to communicate more about the benefits of a scheme and the outcomes and, and just stop at saying, you know, before you get to saying what it is, it opens up a whole realm of possibilities where you can get that private sector expertise in to design you what will ultimately be a better scheme for the users. But equally, as I said, I think at the moment in the, you know, consultancy sector, we are guilty of designing for our clients rather than designing for the end users of the infrastructure. Do we give people enough chance to, to give feedback? Both, I suppose, during, the, as you mentioned, sort of during mm. the planning phases. And I think there's always, there's a, there's a difficulty here that we fall down the, the line of maybe giving people what they want mm. and not adding our own professional expertise to give them something that's going to be useful in the future. So there is that, that fine line to tread. But, you know, we're hearing that 55% of people in London say they've not had a chance to give feedback on transport services. Now, seeing as everybody is, 70% of people are using public transport, surely there should be a better platform for doing that. People should feel as if, if they're paying these high fares, if they're paying their taxes, that their voice is heard. And at the moment, people are saying it's, it's not. I think it's around understanding whether people are, you know, they're interested in engaging on those sorts of topics and also looking at like you said you know focusing on the bits where it's useful to have that direct engagement because you can get a lot of understanding from the data that is now open to us so actually do you need to be bothering people with a you know somebody with a clipboard interviewing them about how their tube journey was really <laughs> um, I mean I'm not saying that that you know you never need to do that but I do you know if we're a bit cleverer around understanding the users of the the infrastructure networks from everything else that we can pick up and put together. So that merging of data sets and, and modelling in, in that space, I think we could probably pick up a lot of the trends and a lot of the answers. And actually using that as an evidence base is far more powerful than just, you know, trying to do a sort of relatively small, probably sample size interview when you will only pick up a certain demographic because those are the people that are likely to engage with you. So it's not, you know, it's not as scientific. And it does get very much swayed by what else is happening in the in the media. I mean, like, 
a project that shall remain nameless, but I was talking to them about their public consultation recently, and it was around the time that we had David Attenborough with Blue Planet. And, you know, everything that came out of that was to do with plastics and plastic waste. And this was a, you know, this was an, a project, mm-hmm. an infrastructure project, and all the public consultation was, you know, they, they came to the conclusion that the most influential person in infrastructure is David Attenborough, <laughs> because that was all they were getting back from this public consultation. So I think we need to be a little bit careful that actually there is, you know, there is a role for the experts and the data yeah. and the evidence in this, because these are big long-term funding decisions, not short-term, you know, influenced by the mood of the moment. And the technology now allows us to really get to grips with, with, with people. You know, it's no longer just having a map on a, a table in a, a dusty town hall somewhere, you know, using virtual reality, augmented reality. You know, I know Colin, you've been to see what we're doing at, at Waterloo, what Aikman have been doing at Waterloo, and I've been down to see what some of the work on the A303 and getting people to be able to see what that project's going to look like in the future, to be able to, to hear the acoustic version before and after is incredible. Do you think that maybe this is go- the government needs to get involved a little bit more and open their eyes to trying to get people, using technology to get people more better engaged? I, th- I think so. I, you know, it, then it's easy to assume that you know, digital is going to fix everything. It's not. It's not a panacea for it. I, I, do, I do think, though, the, we need to be mindful that it's not just about having data presented to you it needs to be interactive it needs to be live that's that's the, if if we could fix that and educate people or shape their journey somehow then you'll have a much better use of the available capacity in the system but again you know i think we we've got to you know look beyond london to maybe other cities who do that better than we do or other areas that do it better and i think that's where you know getting sort of private investment or working with industry is is the key to that and I think there's, then there's, there's a whole other side because we talk a lot about digital and data and all of this stuff. But then there's the dark side of all of that. There's cyber attacks. In fact, last year, people told us, the professionals told us when we interviewed them, 70% of them said that they, were, they, they thought it was fairly likely or almost certain that hackers would disrupt our transportation network. And there's also, so London this year is telling us that they're not really that confident in the city's ability to withstand that. Is that because that's true or is that, again, because that's not being communicated? I mean, where do you think we can do a bit better on, on this whole, you know, the dark side of technology front? Colin? I think the, you know, there's a perception there, isn't it? I mean, you know, for every disruption we have from a, you know, from a cyber attack or cyber threat, there are, you know, and I'm going to make the numbers up, there are probably 10 that we don't know about. You know, there are people trying to get into the system, you know, even as we speak, and it goes on all the time. So I do believe there is some resilience in the system. I think probably what people are picking up is, you know, if it is truly impacted, how quickly can we recover? And what can we do to communicate with the people who are affected by it? That, that for me, is probably the more pressing piece from that side. But it's easy to forget that, you know, we have, um, you know, as Hans mentioned, you know, we've got a very good, robust uh, transport system, which is being protected by systems in place at the moment. Sometimes that's going to get disrupted in a city this size, that's always going to happen, is how we recover from that, I think, is key. What about more physical threats? So, you know, looking at natural disasters, climate change, etc. Do you think London's well set? Because a lot of people in the survey are saying that they, they don't believe it to be well set. Over a third, 37%, not confident in the capital's ability to protect them against natural disasters. Again, is that a public perception thing or is that a reality? I would suggest that that is a public perception, actually. Certainly from flood risk, London is, has the highest standard of protection of any city in the country. It's got a, with the Thames Barrier, it has a much higher standard of protection. So I think that there's a bit of that being a um, public perception. And perhaps if you contrast that with the uh, cyber attack, you know, the type of threat 
although climate change is, is altering things, we've dealt with and, and managed and mitigated uh, the risks from flooding for, for much longer than we've had the, the risk of, of cyber attacks. So I think if you're comparing the two, actually, we've probably got a much better track record, a much more established and well-rehearsed um, infrastructure response to the likes of uh, flooding than we do, you know, with things cyber attacks, which it would be developing, you know, probably more quickly and, and the whole sort of area evolving more quickly than, than we've been used to. Sounds like that's, there's that theme of communication again, isn't there, about, you know, educating the public and, you know, how much should we be telling them as well? Because then there's the whole safety aspect of it. So that there must be quite um, a tricky balance to get to. So we need to get Attenborough fronting. We do. We, do, we need our communications own for David all, all major projects. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay. At this point, I'd like to open it up to the rest of the room. Are there any questions about anything that we've discussed? Hi, I'm Paola Boffo. I'm a specification consultant here at ACOM. My question is related to safety. We haven't touched at all on this subject, but I believe that in the future roads will need to be more safe if we really want to use them and the transport will need to improve on the safety side. What is your opinion? I'll start on that. I think you're right. Safety has got to be an absolute consideration. And, and you know, we, we talk a lot in come about safety and design. So right from the outset, you know, you should be designing systems and processes and programs which are safe. Um, I think, though, for me, the you know, the, the, the true improvements in safety and to make sure you're always going to learn is is by sharing you know best practice and you get you go back a few years and everyone was learning from the railways you look forward now particularly in a more data-driven environment a lot of you know the, the more traditional you know roads rails are now learning from aviation so i think the you know we, we've got to look across all transport nodes and see who's doing it very well and then work out what's applicable but in in broad terms i think most safety lessons for any mode of transport have a broader applicability to the other modes of transport as well do we have too much focus on on, on rail, you think? I know that's some of the feedback we've had is that actually we should also be, we should be putting more priority on, on our roads and improving our roads and, and using that. I think that maybe, you know, are people getting too sort of suckered in by the idea of new railways? Well, if you look at the the amount that we spend, you know, the large proportion is on rail. So I think that it's important that that does get a decent level of, of scrutiny. But having said that, you know, the big decisions are about actually how do we want to travel in future and what is the most effective way of doing that. So, you know, picking up on your safety point, if we are defining the outcomes of what, what we actually want from our infrastructure system rather than just saying, I want to get from, you know, from A to B and I want to do it cheaply. If we're saying, actually, I want a journey that is safer for me, I want a journey that is more reliable, I think you, you end up with a sort of a, an entirely different mix of infrastructure and quite different, um, you know, design standards, quite different specifications. Because if you were to, you know, actually what I want, you know, you look at the Boris and his, his bike lanes, I want to get there, you know, safely on my bike, actually. Um, that's a huge investment and it, it, le it leads to an entirely different map, an entirely different network of cycleways than, than we wouldn't have had if you hadn't sort of made that pledge. So I think it's being clear, actually, if safety is one of the priorities, be upfront about it and say those are our sort of you know, the outcomes that we seek and design the system around that. Again, focusing on the users, you know, you might well say, actually, if that is the, the outcome, then, you know, what can we do to work with businesses to reduce the demand, to, to get it so that, you know, the safest journey is when you don't even have to make at all, actually. So I think that, you know, there is a whole uh, sort of different debate that, that we should be opening up about what we need our infrastructure systems to deliver in future. Interesting. Any more questions from the floor? John Lewis, also from ACOM, on the um, commercial market sector in the UK and Ireland. 
so again, on capacity and the balance of capacity and demand, do we think the, the, the town planning system has got the balance right in terms of demands on investors when they're looking to um, develop real estate um, facilities, either from the point of view of constraints or the requirement to invest in infrastructure improvements? It's a really good question. I think, well, it's a changing landscape at the moment. I do see that there will be, you don't want the uh, development system and the, the planning regulations to be the thing that holds it back. So where you're looking now, where we're getting more of these sort of devolution deals with the mayors, actually, I think that will start to put increasing pressure on the planning system. But that's the right way for it to happen, because actually, if you get that proper spatial plan around your city, you should be able to build that whole system of how you want to incentivise the developers and how you want to offset that with you know, user charging and things to, to fund that particular plan. But I do, do think that is going to start to, to unpick some of you know, the freedoms that we might sort of you know, give down to kind of parish council, local authority level through the planning process and the consultations that, that are associated with that. I think the other thing actually that might disrupt that system in particular is where you look at manufactured design because there is very little benefit in aggregating up demand uh, nationally for something which will then get challenged at every single local authority level uh, in terms of how, you know, how that building looks or the amount of you know, different configurations you could have for something which would be manufactured centrally. So I do think there's, there's a, there is a big challenge coming to the to the planning system and some of the sort of local approvals and listed building consent as well I think we're going to have a bit of an upheaval with. And I mean that, that there's an interesting question I think there was what do you think the right balance is between kind of central government dictating planning policy and policy versus devolving it down to the mayoral level do, do the mayors have enough power or should they or do they have too much and should we be looking at a more nationwide you know consistent system? I don't think it's it, yeah certainly not entirely consistent at the moment. It's very much as with a lot of things in the UK, it's quite variable across the country. So you look at what's happening in Manchester and the the devolution deal there, and the, and what the you know Andy Burnham's doing as as the mayor there. Actually, that is a really coherent strategy, and it's driving huge growth and huge investment into Manchester. So I think there are examples of of where that's happening well, but as always, politics uh, gets involved in that. I and mean, they don't, you know, you don't end up with consistent sort of devolution deals across the country. I think there is something that's, that's worth looking at around trying to offset or nationally get some of the benefits from where we can aggregate up demand. So there is a big push through the construction sector deal to look at things like offsite manufacturing. Now, that is not going to work if you just do that as a city and you have maybe three or four buildings uh, that you would you know, look to manufacture. So there is always going to be a need for, you know, none of us exist in, in isolation in our infrastructure system. So I think there is always a need to, you know, to, to look at how they can get the benefit of that. But I guess it's, it's almost set the role of central government should be coordinating and identifying those areas where you can get value out of things like, you know, centrally uh, manufactured standards, buildings, you know, bridges over railways, whatever it is, trying to identify what those are and then, you know, give that as a sort of menu to the to the local authorities, to the, the metro mayors to be able to deliver within because, they, yeah, they're not going to be able to do it on their own, but it would be daft for, you know, for us as an industry to not be trying to help with some form of consistency in the benefits that would bring. Bit of a plug there for our upcoming podcast on, ups, on our off-site manufacturing as well. <laughs> oh, Excellent there we go. Um, any other questions? Hi, it's Rachel Briley from the communications team at Acom. You talked a lot in there about communicating with the public. Do you think that companies like Acom and others in our sector have a bigger role to play in educating the public and gaining buy-in for schemes? 
I do, yeah, and I, and I think again, it all comes down to the partnership word. You know, if, if we're working with whether it's central or you know devolved government, then you know it, it's just as much within our interest to you know to help promulgate the the, the benefits of what we're, we're delivering at the same time. And and I think the you know we, we've we've got a lot of ways. We're, we're probably ahead in some of the social media aspects that we do at the moment, so we can bring that learning, I think, into uh, into government to help. But I think the you know just kind of joining the last two questions together, I think with the devolved powers or you know, going to the you know the, the, the mayoral setup that really does help with the communications because it, you know I was on a, on a panel a couple of weeks ago and the challenge was you know if central government say it we don't believe it but if my you know local politician says it I'm more likely to believe that you know what you're, you're telling me so I do think there is something about you know not just how we communicate but who does that communication and I think you know in answer directly to your question we can help a lot with that from the private sector. I certainly think the private sector actually has a role to play in sharing the learning from, you know, different schemes and across different sectors. So we, we joke that the industry is fragmented, but my God, is government fragmented? And actually that knowledge and, and learning about what works in terms of public engagement and even what each of the government departments and each of the, you know, the, the clients that, that are associated with them value and how they're engaging the public. Actually, most of the time that is not joined up. So the ability of the private sector to to understand that, to take that learning, to take the data sets even you know across the clients to help them understand what's going on with their customers, what is really you know bothering them or not bothering them in that particular location. I think is, is a hugely valuable service that we should be doing more of as consultancy and engineering firms to try and help clients. Actually, it also helps if there's been a change in the you know the the political party at the time as well you know we may become the constant on the program so you know that that's something you know another reason why we should be involved in that uh one final question hi dave padell i'm head of strategy and growth here at acom we talked a little bit earlier about um different financing and, and funding models um the, the number of vehicles that uh, generate revenue through the congestion charging here in london has increased year on year and yet revenue levels have actually declined, and this is due to the increase in Uber and the likes, which are exempt from that congestion charging. Given the indication that we have from network users of their willingness to pay for an enhanced provision and, and, and level of amenity, what's the panel's views on the next stage of evolution with regards to road user charging? Adam? So well, we're actually modelling this at the moment for Department of Transport, so we are working with AC members, including... Uh, Acom to look at how we yeah, how we might model that for Department of Transport. So it's quite interesting that I like said there is that willingness in central government to start looking at alternative um, mechanisms to raise funds. So as you say, you know, vehicle excise duty is is a declining revenue stream for them. They need to find something else. So yeah, the ability to to be able to start to to model those um, different scenarios, I think, is is welcome that they're, they're looking at it, and actually is probably not beyond the realm of, of what the public would expect if you look at, at how things have been disrupted. I mean, you mentioned Uber. Actually, if you look at the, you know, the variable pricing and how that, that has entirely changed, um, but people are very accepting of it. And you know, if you get an Uber after a concert, it's a 10 times surge, but that's fine because your willingness to pay at that point because it's freezing cold and it's midnight or you want to get home, it's absolutely fine. So I think you know, doing a little bit more outside our sort of traditional funding and financing mechanisms um, to try and test some alternative models like that is, is absolutely the, the right thing to do. Brilliant, right, I think that probably wraps things up for today. Um, before we go, can I say a big thanks to our panel, Hannah Vickers, Colin Wood, and of course, Roma Agrawal, and our audience here in Oldgate Tower. Thank you very much for coming along and asking some great questions. For those of you who are listening online, if you want to find out more about ACOM's Future of Infrastructure reports, then please go to infrastructure.acom.com. <laughs>